Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. If you'll turn to the book of Ephesians tonight, I want to begin tonight. I want to begin a new series on a study through the book of Ephesians. And, um, and uh, I want to title the message or title this series called Living It Up. You ever heard that term, living it up? And, um, uh, but really what it means, it means living it up. It means living up. It means living from heaven, from, from earth's perspective, living a heavenly life, living it up. And so that's what it means. You know, I, I've told you many times that one of the things me and that I had in common with my father is that we loved to on Saturdays we loved to watch old movies together, and my dad watched old movies on Saturday. He watched westerns, he watched cowboy movies, he watched Tarzan. Y'all remember Tarzan? Y'all remember the old black and white Tarzan movies? And he watched Tarzan, and he watched you know he watched uh, Abbott and Costello. Uh, he even watched the Three Stooges on Saturday sometime. But he, lo- yeah, that's right. Larry, Curly, and Moe. I mean, you couldn't have a good Saturday without Larry, Curly, and Moe. And, uh, but he loved westerns. He loved old movies. And I loved, I have a love for old movies. I love old movies. I have some favorite old movies. Um, I'm, I'm particularly uh, in favor of the old Elvis movies. I don't know if y'all like the old Elvis movies, but one of my favorite Elvis movies is Clambake. Have y'all seen Clambake? That's one of my favorite Elvis movies. And uh, so I love all movies, but there's a movie that we would watch and it was called Living It Up. And I don't know if you've seen it. It was a movie that was made in 1954 and it had Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Dean Martin in it. And it was a, it was a great old movie. And the story was, is that Jerry Lee Lewis, who played, played a patient of a doctor uh, who was played by Dean Martin, um, had a diagnosis that he was going to die uh, very soon. And so because of that, he had, uh, there was a reporter who was a writer uh, for the New York Times. It was a lady that played in the movie. I can't remember what her name was. But she, uh, she played a reporter, and she wanted to record and write the story of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's last days as he played uh, this part in this movie. So what he did was he decided he was going to go to New York City and to live it up until he died. He was just going to li- spend all of his money. He was going to live it up. And so Dean Martin was concerned for him. So Dean Martin decided he would go with him. Now he had ulterior motives. He liked the woman that was writing the article. He fell in love with her. And then he finds out that Jerry Lee Lewis is really not sick, that he is, uh, he's going to be fine. And that before they leave, he realizes he's going to be fine. So he doesn't have the nerve to tell him that he's not dying. He goes on to let him believe that he's dying, all because he wants to be around this woman uh, that he's fallen in love with, because he knows if he he tells the story, then all of a sudden um, they won't go. But it's one of the funniest movies. If you've never seen it, look it up, watch it. Uh, It has a great plot. And it's a... It's living it up. It's, he's, he's living his life as, as though he has no restrictions, no inhibition, as though life was ending. And, uh, and so I want to talk about the book of Ephesians. I want to give you an introduction tonight into the book of Ephesians. I'm so excited about preaching this book. Uh, I, I, the Holy Spirit spoke to me to do this. Um, 
Just last week, the Holy Spirit spoke to me that He wanted me to teach the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights, and I'm going to do some Sunday mornings also. And I'll tell you about that specifically in just a moment and how the Holy Spirit spoke to me. But I want to begin tonight with a couple of illustrations and, um, and, and talking about, uh, because I absolutely love this book as I've read through the book a couple of times, several times. Uh, the riches of this book is unlimited. I'm telling you that you're gonna, we're going to see some things in the book of Ephesians. If you will for me the next few weeks, if you'll just take some time and read through this book as your devotion or just read the chapters of this book, just read it. Uh, this book is full of unlimited uh, resources and un- it is unlimited. The riches of this book is unlimited. And out of this study, here's what I believe is going to happen. I believe that God is going to give a growth and a maturity of the saints of God uh, that you know we haven't experienced in a long time. I think there's some maturity that God is going to bring out of this book. It's already affecting me. And, um, but just as an introduction tonight, I want to read the first two verses tonight and just give you an introduction into this tonight. And then uh, next week we'll begin verses 3 through, uh, actually 3 through 15 we'll cover next week. But beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I want to begin with a couple of illustrations tonight. A few years ago, the New York Times reported several years ago of a story of a man and a wife who died in their 50s. And they found them dead in their apartment, both of them. And the autopsy revealed that they had both died of malnutrition, both of them. What was interesting was when the police found their bodies, which they had already began to decay by the time they were discovered, they searched the apartment. And when they searched the apartment, they found in a closet a whole pile of little paper bags and in the paper bags, as they opened the little paper bags, they, they found a total of $40,000 in those bags. Now, don't you think it's a little bit ridiculous to die of malnutrition and have $40,000 in paper bags in your closet? <laughs> I mean, think about that for a moment. They died of malnutrition, but they had $40,000 that was in their closet. Another illustration I want to begin with tonight, there was a lady in American history known as Hetty Green. I don't know if you've ever heard of Hetty Green. Hetty Green was called the America's greatest miser. Have y'all been around misers? Y'all been around people who are really tight? I mean, really tight. I mean, really tight. My grandfather was tight. My grandfather was so tight that he would take aluminum foil that he had something in and he would wash that aluminum foil and lay it out and let it dry and wrap other things in it. That's how tight he was. I mean, he was tight. I mean, he was tighter than bark on a tree. And uh, he'd do anything to say. He saved every newspaper. He saved every coin and every penny. He put them in jars. When he died, he had $3,000 worth of change uh, on, a, on a skid in his basement where he would, not, he would not let change. If you threw a penny down or walked by a penny and didn't pick it up, 
he'd be as mad as it could get. And, uh, and so he was tight. I mean, he was, he was tight. And, uh, and so Hattie Green was called America's greatest miser. When she died in 1916, and uh, you all know that's a long time ago, right? 1916. When she died, she left an estate valued over $100 million. Isn't that amazing? That's a lot of money in 1916. And, but Hattie Green was so uh, miserly that she ate cold oatmeal because it was too expensive, she thought, for her to heat water uh, to warm up her oatmeal. Her son had a leg injury, and, uh, and it was so severe that she delayed medical attention to him because she was waiting to find a free clinic uh, where he could be treated. And she delayed so long, his leg had to be amputated. Now, that's a strange woman, folks, right there. That's strange. But she died with 100 million in, in, uh, with 100 million in her estate, and her, and her son lost his leg. Now, that's really no understanding how to use your resources. That really doesn't make any sense. To me, that's kind of ridiculous. Now, the book of Ephesians is written to Christians that are like that. The book of Ephesians is written to Christians that are just like that. You say, well, well how, how, how do you mean? What kind of Christian is like that? Let me tell you what kind of Christian is like. The kind of Christian who doesn't understand the riches that he has in Christ. The kind of Christian who wanders through life with a case of spiritual malnutrition. Who doesn't know where the feast is. The kind of Christian who doesn't know how to tap into his resources. Maybe because he doesn't know what they are. Or so he never really finds out how rich he is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you something tonight. As the body of Christ, we have resources and heavenly riches that are available to us that we don't have to live our lives in spiritual malnutrition. God has provided many riches for us in Christ Jesus. If you get the handle of the book of Ephesians... Some people have called this book the bank of the believer. This is a, uh, John Phillips said it like this. He said, this is a spiritual checkbook, this book. Every time you write a check out of, out of this bank, your funds are non-diminished. In other words, you can write a check on all the riches and promises of God as often as you want, for as much as you want, and never diminish the account. Isn't that nice? That's the book of Ephesians. It is a book about riches. It's a book about fullness. It's a book about being filled with things. It's a book about inheritance. It's a book that tells us what we own in Christ. And some have called it the treasure book of the Bible. Now, when I say riches, I'm not talking about material riches. I'm talking about spiritual riches. And as John Phillips says, that this book is full of spiritual principles that are the riches that we own and have in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we don't even realize what we have access to as a believer. 
And because of that, we live in a place of spiritual malnutrition. They said that during the Depression, I I read one time that there were banks that were only allowing people, in some cases, to withdraw 10% of what they had in the bank out at one time. How many are thankful that God's bank doesn't work like that? You can draw out all you want, all the time. It never diminishes your account, but you don't, but you don't know, you don't know that unless you understand the principles that are put out here in the book of Ephesians. And so as we get into this book, we want to get it down. It'll absolutely revolutionize your life. And I think we're going to have a revolution here at RVCC by the time we're through with this book because of the incredible riches that are available to us. It will teach you who you are, how rich you are in Christ, and how you are to use those riches for the glory of God. I mean, we're going to unlock something in this church and in this body. We're not going to be spiritually malnutritioned. We're going to understand the principles of the richness of living in Christ Jesus. There are resources that are available to us that we can live in and walk in in our life. Now, I want you to see that the book is is based on this kind of thing, this idea of riches and fullness and inheritance, just by a couple of illustrations. The first example is in chapter 1 and verse 7, talks about the riches of his grace at the end of the verse. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. I'm going to show you a couple of verses. We're just going to do a survey tonight before we get deep into the book. But I want to show you a couple of things. Verse 7 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. Thank God for the blood. The forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches, the riches of what? His grace. According to the riches of his grace. Chapter 3 in verse 8 talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And so in chapter 3, if you go down to verse 16, it says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And so when we look at this, what do we see? The riches of his glory. So you have the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, and the riches of his son. That's powerful. We'll dive into that and the meaning of what that means to have the riches of his grace, the riches of his son, and the riches of his glory. And I'm telling you, it's going to bless you you're gonna, it's going to move you to a different place in, 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 in Christ Jesus. Why? Because what are we doing? We're living it up. We're going to live it up in Christ Jesus. And we're going to live in a way that we haven't lived before. We're going to walk in faith like we haven't walked in faith before. We're going to tap into the resources of God we have not experienced yet in this church and in this body. I'm telling you, there are resources and riches and principles of this book that is going to help us as a church to go deeper in Christ. 
God has so much more for us tonight. So much more for you tonight. And, and it's not just being playing church. It's just not going to church on Sunday and coming in on Wednesday and, and going through some of the motions we do. Those are good. Those are fine. The fellowship's great. The, the, the worship's great. The, the time together is great. The word of God is, is encouraging and great. But I'm telling you, there is an untapped resource that is available to us that if we can win a city, change a world, change a life, there are riches and resources that we can dive into tonight and tap into that God will put a stamp on this church that will never be pulled off of this body. I believe that's coming. I'm believing that. We can't hold back any longer. We cannot stay back. Any, we've got to put aside everything that has been a weight to us and everything that has been a, a hurdle or a hindrance in our thinking, in our walk, in our personal um, uh, feelings, whatever that is. We've got to lay those things inside and say, there is a body of Christ. There is a church that God wants to raise up to pour out his riches, his grace, and his glory on tonight. And God's going to do that. In other words, God is unloading all of his riches in the book of Ephesians. Look at it like this. Think about this for a moment. The word grace is used 12 times. And the word grace means God's unherited, undeserved kindness and favor. Grace is behind all of the lavishness that God pours out on our lives. Grace is used 12 times in this scripture. How many are thankful for the grace of God? God's lavished favor, he has poured out on you. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. But his graciousness he poured out upon us. The word glory is used eight times. Woo. The word inheritance is used four times. The word riches is used five times. The word fullness and filled is used seven times. And the key to everything, and the key to everything is because the scripture finalizes with everything and it says in Christ. Everything is in Christ. His riches is in Christ. Everything is in Christ. That's the fullness of the riches of the inheritance of the glory of his grace is ours. Do you see that? Do you see that all of these things that are be available to us as believers are in Christ Jesus? They're in Christ. There's nothing. We can't get them anywhere else. They're only found in our relationship with Christ. Because we are one with Christ in the church, because we are redeemed, this incredible fullness is ours. Maybe the sum of it all is in chapter 3 and verse 19. This is probably what I would call the book's verse. This is the, this is the verse that, you know, that I have used and, and set aside as a kind of a text for the whole book. And it's a powerful, powerful verse. Look what it says in verse 19. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You hear that? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that an incredible thought? That you might, that I'm praying that the book of Ephesians would fill us to the fullness of to being filled with the fullness of everything that is in Christ Jesus. 
The fullness of God, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that. To be, f- to be filled with the fullness of God himself, that we might know the unsearchable riches that are in Christ Jesus and would be, would be to be able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. In other words... There is a resource for you tonight and a resource for me tonight that there is a fullness of God in all of us. It really means to have your tank full. It means, and I'm going to go into that word in just a minute and talk about it. You see, it's, it's all such magnanimous, grandiose concept, fullness, riches, inheritance, wealth, resources, all in the book of Ephesians. There are enough resources in heaven to cover. Listen, there's enough resources in heaven to cover all your past debts, present liabilities, and future needs and still not diminish your account. That's God's plan. When I say past debts, what do I mean? I mean your past, the forgiveness of your past. How many know there's enough riches and fullness of God to cover your past? to cover every debt that you've ever owed, every sin you've ever committed, present liabilities, and the future needs, and still not diminish your account. The word fullness comes from the Greek word, uh, pleroma in the Greek. It means to, to put in or fill up to the brim is what it means. It means uh, it's the idea in the Greek, it's the idea of the picture of a ship that is full and ready to sail. It's the idea of, it means power, presence, and riches in Christ, is what it means. To have God's fullness is to have God's power in us, his presence with us, and all the riches of Christ in us, filled to the rim. Now here's here's what the verb meaning in the Greek means. It means this, it's in the aorist tense. It's powerful. It means, and the aorist tense means this, it means it's not negotiable. In other words, it means a continually being filled, a continual fullness, a continually, uh, not just being full one time, it means continually being full. Have you all ever gone to a restaurant and, um, and you, know, you go to a nice restaurant and you, know, you have a good server, if you're having coffee or you're having tea or drink, uh, how many has ever had waitresses that will not let your drink get empty or will not let your coffee get low? They are constantly filling your drink and filling your cup. That's what that word means. That's what the verb tense of the word fullness in the Greek means. It means this. It means never to go below the rim. It'll never run out. The riches of Christ shall never run out. It means nothing wanting. It means carrying out promises and prophecies. Think about this for a moment. The fullness of Christ that is in us. What is the fullness of Christ? It's everything that God has available to us. Do you know that what fills you is uh, God's promises fill you? His prophecies over your life fills you? And they fill our lives and we're able, at being full, we're able to carry them out to the fullness of God. In chapter 4, verse 13, 
it says this. It says, Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Man, what a great promise that is. The fullness of Christ. So you have the fullness of God in chapter 3, verse 19. You have the fullness of Christ in 4.13. 5.18, the Bible tells us this. It says, chapter 5, verse 18, says, And do not be drunk with wine, which is a dissipation, but be ye what? Filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God, the gracious resources of God. There is a great resource. So the guarantee of the believer in all of this is where it says it's in Christ Jesus. That's how every, the fullness of Christ, in Christ, that is the reality of it all. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, that we are joint heirs with him. As Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to call us brother. He has joined, he that is joined to the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, or joined to the Lord, rather, is one Spirit so that we have what he has. We possess what he possesses, all the riches that are at our disposal. So what's that mean? When we are joint heirs with Christ, we are joined with Christ. And so whatever inheritance he has, we have. Praise God. Come on, y'all. That's good news tonight. That what he possesses, we possess tonight. All his riches are at our disposal tonight. We can live it up. We can reach into the spiritual rim and pull out the fullness of God into this world and into this rim of our life. It's the fullness of God. I'm telling you, that makes me happy tonight. I mean, that just blesses me. I mean, and I'm excited about this study. Living it up. Life can be lived two ways. You either live it up or you can live it down. <laughs> right? Which way are you going to do it tonight? Live it up or live it down. You can live life from an eternal, heavenly perspective or you can live life from a temporary, earthly perspective. You can live it up, or you can live it down. You can chase what is temporary and temporarily satisfying, or you can chase what is eternal and lasting forever. Because what God changes stays changed forever. What God touches is transformed forever. What God puts his hand on God preserves and God keeps. And what God promises, he is always faithful. So you can live it up tonight. I want to challenge you in the next few weeks to let God speak to us. Let's live it up. Let's let every spiritual blessing that is available to us move into our hearts. Let us be full to the rim of everything that God has for us. Believing him for it. Believing that he will do what he says that he will do. You know, I was flip, flipping through the channels last night. And uh, as I was home by myself, as my wife was shopping, and uh, had to get my own dinner last night, y'all. Poor me. <laughs> had to fend for myself. <laughs> it was pitiful, y'all. 
So I was just flipping through the channels. No friends. Abandoned. <laughs> and uh, they have the old game show channel. You all know the game show channel. And on the game show channel, there was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You all seen Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I love that. I love that. And I was watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And a guy won a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire last night. Somebody got happy last night. But here's the thing. I knew the answer to every question. So if I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire last night, I would have been a millionaire. I could answer every question. <laughs> but I wasn't, right? But he became a millionaire, an earthly millionaire. And, you know, there are a lot of people... Uh, they're rich people from an earthly perspective, right? I was reading not too long ago, and I was reading about, um, I didn't realize this, but um, y'all know who Ted Turner was. When Ted Turner um, and, and merged Time Warner with AOL uh, back in, I think it was 2000, he made $6.5 billion off of that deal. Isn't that something? I mean, that's a day, that's a good day's work, right, Rick? $6.5 billion. When he merged with AOL, he became an instant billionaire. $6.5 billion. How many know that's a lot of money? I looked up what, just out of curiosity, I wanted to know what Bill Gates was worth. I looked it up today. Bill Gates is worth is $131.1 billion. Now, I could do a lot with $131 billion. You get a house, I get a house, he gets a house, she gets a house. I'd be, yeah, everybody in this church would have a new house. Praise God. That's probably why God doesn't give it to me because <laughs> it would end up being someplace else. And so there are a lot of people who have incredible wealth today. A lot of people have worked hard to get incredible wealth. But there is a group of people in this world who are incredibly wealthy. And I want you to know the believer this tonight is incredibly wealthy. You and I are incredibly wealthy. To the city of Ephesus, the apostle Paul came to Ephesus. And, and uh, of course, Ephesus is, was like many of the big cities in America. Uh, we'll get into more of uh, that city. When I was in Great Britain and I got to tour the museum, the British Museum, they had a section of antiquities, and um, in this section, they had all of some of the ruins from the city of Ephesus. They had all of these uh, idols, uh, they had all of these temple um, relics, they had uh, parts of the city that had fallen down and collapsed, and I was so amazed at what they worshipped and what they used to make money. And it was, it was a city that was just, you could tell that it was a city full of, um, of, a city full of just greed and, and, and idol worship. And, but Ephesus was, you know, it was a uh, banking center of its day. It was a port city. Uh, it was the Chase Manhattan of its day, the Bank of America, the National Bank of the Ancient World. And it, and it was the it revolved around the financial industry. The wealthiest people in the world were living in Ephesus at the time. Uh, 
And Paul went there and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to a group of people who received Jesus as their personal savior and became incredibly wealthy group of people. You can read in the book of Acts chapter 19, Paul's time in in, uh, Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. He spent three years there. And there's a reason for that. Because out of Ephesus came out all the major churches that were planted in in all of Asia. The seven churches of Asia flowed out of Ephesus. It was out of those believers there came the greatest of missionaries and missionary work there. Matter of fact, Timothy pastored a group of people that was in Ephesus for a short time, and he had a very difficult time. Paul had to encourage him several times because of the, of the, of the, the difficulty of pastoring in, in an area like that. And so what happened was in this world, amidst all of the earthly, temporary riches, there was a group of those who from the eternal heavenly perspective became, a, became incredibly rich in Christ. I'm referring to every born again, blood washed child of God. If you're born again tonight, you are wealthy in the things of God. Eternally, you are wealthy. You say, well, prove that. Well, I'd be happy to. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that through him you might be rich. 1 Corinthians 1.5, put it this way, and everything you are enriched by him. And my favorite, Proverbs 10.22, puts it this way, the blessing of the Lord maketh rich tonight. The blessings of the Lord maketh rich tonight. But here's the tragedy. The tragedy is that there is a lot of Christians that don't know how wealthy they are. They don't understand spiritual wealth. I'm talking about spiritual wealth tonight. I'm not talking about, you know, physical wealth. I'm talking about spiritual wealth. That's what satisfies the soul. And I know most of you know that. But what's happened is we have lost our understanding of spiritual wealth. Just as Hattie Green lost the perspective of of how much money she had physically, that that it distorted her view of 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 a healthy life. She died of malnutrition. Hattie Green died of malnutrition with $100 million in the bank. How much was a tall boy? You know what I'm saying? Over here. I mean, (laughs) come on over here to, how much is a cheeseburger? But to die of malnutrition. But Christians are dying of malnutrition. A lot of Christians are spiritually dying of malnutrition. And so we have to understand the purpose of the book of Ephesians is to show us how incredibly rich we are as believers and to show us that we are aware of the fact that we are in the hev- in heavenly realms with Jesus, we are incredibly rich and we ought to live it up. We ought to live life from the perspective with that idea in mind, to live it up in Christ Jesus. So we have these two verses that open this book tonight. And I just want to talk a minute about that and introduce that to you tonight.
Really, it's, it's, it's God's hello from heaven. Really. As you open up this book, God is basically saying to you, hello from heaven. He is talking to you about some of the heavenly realities that are yours. It's like the spiritual phone is ringing. And as you pick it up, it's God, hello from heaven. Well, let's start with verse 1. There's a couple things I want to show you tonight because I think that they're important. And I only got a couple minutes, so I want to get to the important part of the principles I want to show you in these two verses tonight. First of all, um, in verse 1, the Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And so, first of all, I want you to see our heavenly purpose. Our heavenly purpose. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This letter of Ephesians, of course, Paul is writing, and most of Paul's letters begin this way. You'll see ancient letters uh, that have been written to the churches that there are, uh, the reality, they basically have five parts to each letter. Uh, first, there's the introduction, where we are told who the writer was and who the readers were. And, and, and when I look at that kind of, reminds me, it's kind of written like how you would receive an email today. You receive an email, you see who it's from, you see who it's to, right? And then, and then, and then you, there's a greeting, uh, and then there is a, uh, most of Paul's letters, there is a greeting, a prayer uh, that is a greeting. Then there's the body of the letter, and there's a closing comment or conclusion, and the New Testament follows this pattern. This is what you see in New Testament letters. So you have this introduction in verse 1, in the part he tells you who the writer is, the reader. Now, the writer here is Paul. Have you noticed how we, we mentioned, I mean, it just says, I, Paul, Paul, an apostle. And uh, if you've been in church in any time period, you know who Paul is. Paul was a writer. He's the writer of this particular book. He wrote half of the New Testament. He tells us uh, here of our heavenly purpose in these verses. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He says, Paul. You see, his name wasn't always Paul. And uh, uh, we pick up the account of his life. Uh, this man, Paul, in the New Testament, you all know the story of Paul. Paul he originally was named Saul. He was from Tarshish. He was a Jew. He was a Jewish man, but he was trained at the University of Tarsus, and he was brilliant, well-educated. He was a man who had a hatred for the Christian faith. Um, he was Saul of Tarsus. Remember, he took the uh, interstate to Damascus to go and to Inter, inter, to pick Christians and kill Christians, but on that road he happens to have this miracle encounter with God. Uh, the miracle of salvation happened in his life, and Jesus saved him. How many know salvation is a miracle? Did you know that salvation is a miracle in our life? Salvation is a great miracle. And uh, you can put your name where Paul is tonight. Why? Because Paul, who who apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's in Christ Jesus that you've been saved tonight. Your name could be there. This letter is addressed to you. If you are converted 
This letter is sent to you. The book of Ephesians is for you. And so Paul, it's interesting. Um, Of course, he became Paul. Saul was his first name after King Saul of Israel, who was the tallest king of Israel. And he was the tallest king. After his salvation, now he's called Paul, which means small. (laughs) So he went from being called Saul, who was the tallest king in Israel, after his conversion and shortly into his missionary journey, his name changed from Saul to Paul, which means small, which means um, he moved from the tallest to the smallest. His smallness became a channel for God's bigness. How many know our smallness and humility in Christ becomes a channel for God's bigness? If we are tall in our own eyes, we'll be small in the kingdom. But if we humble ourselves and become small, it is a channel of God's, of God's bigness that can run through our lives. Salvation is a miracle. And uh, you know it's a miracle when anybody gets saved. It is an incredible miracle. And you can rejoice in the miracle of your salvation tonight. You know, a few years ago when my daughter was in high school, she was part of a group called Young Life. I don't know if you've ever heard of Young Life. It's it's part of the, some of the campuses of schools, and it's a discipleship group that are in some high schools. and And uh, she became part of Young Life, and she would go to Young Life, and and there would be these testimonies of these high school kids that had been drug addicts, that had been uh, extremely promiscuous and sexually active, and they had done a lot of different things that, you know, um, you know, just worldly. And she came home one day and she said, you know, dad, she said, I don't think I have a testimony. I said, what do you mean you don't have a testimony? She said, well, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, I wasn't in some big sin. I wasn't in some type of sinful practice life. I just needed saved and I needed Jesus. And I realized that I was born a sinner and uh, I know I sinned, but I, I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't you know, a, you know, a alcoholic. I wasn't, you know, and, uh, and I told her, I said, Savannah, I said, listen, I said, this, it takes just as much grace to preserve your life as it does the grace to cover the sin that is in your life. In other words, some people grow up in church all their life and they get saved and they've been a Christian for a long time. They've been around spiritual things and godly things. They think they don't have a testimony. You do have a testimony. Let me tell you what your testimony is. Your testimony is, is that the grace of God preserved you and protected you from many things that could have tried to destroy you. Let me tell you, that's a big testimony. The presence, testimony of preservation is a powerful testimony. Those who are able to keep themselves in God and keep themselves pure, that is a powerful, powerful testimony. We should never, don't ever minimize your testimony because every testimony, every testimony is a miracle from God. Every testimony, every salvation is a miracle from God. And Paul, he was converted he met Jesus, and, uh, and the Bible, he classifies himself, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he identifies himself as Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle, 
We see in chapter 2 and verse 20, the Bible says that, that uh, all these spiritual principles are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the po- apostles did the foundational work. And it was, it was Paul and these apostles in the New Testament that did the foundational work of the principles that are in this book. Um, but it's interesting, the word apostle literally means to send forth. An apostle really is one that is sent forth. In a general sense, there are, there are those that, in the scripture, there are those that are called apostles, even outside the 12 that were called apostles. It means sent ones. It means those that are sent. Um, and the original 12 were responsible for laying the foundation of the New Testament and and the foundation of the scripture in the New Testament canon. Today, apostles, uh, we don't, they're not apostles like Paul. Uh, they don't have new revelation of scripture that is, that is being canonized. But there is the apostolic gift. And the, you know, we have, we have put a, uh, we have done a poor job of, of, explaining the apostolic gift that is on men's lives. There are men that have apostolic anointings, which is similar. Today's apostles, they lead, they put in order, they structure, they set leadership. Those are all apostolic gifts. That's what the apostles did. And they set in order. And, and that gift is still operating today in the hour that we live in by the will of God. And so we have the apostle God, uh, the apostle Paul, who said, I'm an apostle, an apostle, because that was always questioned in his life. And uh, whenever you are uh, to be uh, in the middle of the will of God, we, we see here Paul's conversion, his call, and now we see his confidence. It says, it's by the will of God, by the will of God that I am an apostle. It's by the will of God that I have been saved. And some render it um, by the will of God. Some translations under God's plan. Paul recognizes that God had a plan for his life. Life was not just a series of happenstance. But I want to get to this part tonight. And I know I'm not going to get through it all, but I want to get this part to you. I want to talk a minute about the will of God. Paul said, by the will of God. And whatever you... Uh, wherever you are to be, to be there by the will of God, whatever you are, uh, you are to be there by the will of God. I don't know where we have gotten the, this idea about the will of God, but when I first got saved, I had this question about the will of God. Is there any question that causes Christians concern um, about the will of God for their life? It's this question. What is the will of God for my life? How do I find the will of God for my life? And, and, and so as young people, we, we have this question, I want to know what the will of God is for my life is. <coughs> we ask that question all the time. And uh, we say, well, how do we find the will of God? What does God want you to do? All of us want to know the will of God for our lives. We seek that. The will of God for us is what we ought to do 
But it's going to, you know, we think sometimes the will of God is this thing that God's going to ask us to do something we don't want to do, and it's going to be hard, and, and you know, somehow we've gotten this idea the will of God is going to, be, be, going to be so hard, and it's going to be hard to find, and that if we don't do the will of God, God's going to zap us. If we don't do the will of God, and, and, and you know, when we do do the will of God, if we don't do it right, God's going to zap us again, that we can never line up right even when we find the will of God, will we do it right? I, I don't believe that's the way God has it. Uh, I think he is a loving father. And uh, let me just use this illustration. Let's just imagine one day that you are on your way home. And this is before the days of cell phones. Y'all remember the days before cell phones? <laughs> so you, and so you can't, call, you, you, can't, you can't call home, you can't use a cell. You're on your way home and you're thinking to yourself, and uh, let's just use me as an illustration. I'm driving home, and, and uh, I really wish uh, my son Austin would wash my car for me. I'm going to a ball game Saturday, and it'd be nice to have my car washed. Uh, it, it'd be nice to be good and clean to ride in. And, uh, and so at the same time that I'm thinking, man, I really would like Austin to wash my car, which probably is not going to happen, y'all, but... Um, if you're watching tonight, Austin, it'd be great to have my car washed. But as I'm thinking that as I'm driving home, there's Austin sitting at home and he's thinking, man, I want to do something that would please my dad. And he gets to thinking and wondering uh, what his dad might like him to do for him. He says, I know what I'll do. The grass needs cut. And I know dad doesn't like to cut grass. So I'm going to cut the grass for him. And when I get home, he'll be really, when dad gets home, he'll be really pleased because I've done his will. I've done what he would have liked me to do. So Austin goes out and he cuts my grass for me. Nice kid. He manicures it, edges it, blows it off, the whole deal. I get home and I drive up and Austin walks up and says, hey dad, uh, look what I've done. And I was thinking about how much I love you and how much I wanted to please you. So to please you and show you how much I love you, I cut the grass for you. And so what are you going to do? I'm driving home thinking, man, I'd like to have my truck washed, but I get home and he's cutting my grass. So are, are you, are you, I mean, am I going to get out and say, you nitwit, I wish you would, you have no clue. I wanted my truck washed. I didn't want the grass cut. And, uh, and, is that, is that what we would do? No, that's not what we would do. We would be happy. We would say thanks. We would, and I believe that is how God is also. Your heavenly father loves you far more than we even love our own children. But the heavenly father knows our heart, the will of God. I've come to understand um, is not so much where you are as who you are. The will of God is not so much where you are as to who you are. Now, I want you to give this tonight. The will of God touches not so much on career as it does our character. Wherever you are and whatever career you are in, it is an opportunity for you to ultimately fulfill his will because the ultimate will of God for your life is that you be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate will of God's, God's will for your life. And so 
by the will of God. How do I find, how do I go finding the plan and God's purpose for my life? I want to show you something. The first thing is to start with the things you already know are God's will. You want to, I'm going to tell you how to find God's will. The first thing that you do in finding God's will is already do the things that you know are God's will. And the scripture tells us that. The scripture gives us things that you don't have to pray about. There are things that is God's will that you don't have to pray about. You just know they are God's will. For example, you are specifically told in the Bible. I'll give you two examples. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, it says this. This is the will of God for you. Even your sanctification that you abstain from fornication. That is the will of God. You don't have to pray and ask God if it's his will that you stay sexually pure. God specifically says in the scripture, this is the will of God for you that you stay sexually pure. But that's not the key verse. That's not the key word in that verse. This is the will of God for you that says, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. Now, sanctification is the process of God working in our life, bringing holiness into our life. Romans 12, 2 says what? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. Is that not right? And that's what the scripture tells us. The will of God is that we offer our bodies, we offer our lives as a sacrifice unto God. That is the will of God. In the same book, he says in chapter 5 and verse 18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So you can know it is God's will for you to be thankful in Christ Jesus, to be thankful in God, to know him. Now, in closing tonight, I want to leave you with this. This is powerful. I want you to see this. Turn to John chapter 7, verse 17. We're talking about the will of God. We're going to tap into the riches of the will of God for our church and for your life. I'm going to give you a couple of things as we close here tonight that to take with you. John chapter 7 and verse 17. And uh, this is, uh, if it says in verse 17 of John chapter 7, if anyone wills to do his will, if anyone wills to do his will, the scripture says, it says, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. Notice the order. If, he, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will what? He will know. If anyone is willing to do his will, what happens? The second part is he will know whether it's of God or not. And that is interesting because which comes first, being willing to do or knowing? What comes first is being willing to do. Anyone who is willing to do the will of God, as he does it, he will know. So as you do the will of God, as you do what God wills, his will will be revealed to you. Now this is powerful. Stay with me. Being willing to do, you will know. That word know 
is an interesting word. And um, there are five append- four appendages to the definition of this word and understanding of this word know. So by doing the will of God, you're going to know. Okay? This, and you're going to know aspects of the will of God. Number one, you're going to have understanding. And in, in the text of the word, it means understanding by the knowledge as the effects of experience. In other words, it's the experience of doing, you're going to know the will of God. So as you do, you're going to experience some things, and out of that experience, you're going to know the will of God. I don't have time to go there, but let me give you the scriptures to read. In Acts chapter 21, Paul begins this process of, of, uh, of his journey, and, and in the book of Acts, he is, he is, uh, he is in, he's in, he's in Jerusalem. He's gone there to uh, where these, these Asians are being, uh, becoming Jews, and he goes into the temple, and he pays their homage and their perf- purification, and they're becoming Jews. And while Paul was there, Paul was recognized and, uh, as a believer of Christ, and so they begin to persecute Paul while he's there. And so he, he begins to get into this discussion, and a riot breaks out in the temple. And so the Roman Peturians realize there's something going on in the temple. They send the guards down. They grab Paul. They pull Paul out, and they arrest him. And they're taking him back to the barracks. Uh, you can read it in, in Acts 21 and 22. They take Paul back to the barracks and to show him a lesson because he stirred up the temple. They're going to beat him. But before they beat him, they tie him up, and right before they beat him, they say to Paul, they, uh, Paul says to him, are you going to really uh, give lashes to a Roman citizen? And so you could, not, you could not give lashes to a Roman citizen without them being tried uh, by Rome. And so they go and he tells the commander, and the commander says, are you, a, are you really a Roman citizen? The commander said, I paid for my citizenship. Paul said, you may have paid for your citizenship, but I'm a Roman by birth. In other words, I trump you, buddy. I am a Roman. You can't whip a Roman without a trial. And so he, he backs off, and, and they, they put Paul in prison for a day. They release him the next day. And guess where he goes? He goes back to the temple. And when he gets back there, he gets in an argument with the Sadducees and Pharisees. And so... The Sadducees and the Pharisees, and Paul's got them all stirred up because he's a Christian now in Christ. And so they're arguing with Paul, and all of a sudden the Sadducees grab him and begin beating him, beating him up. And Paul said, the only reason that you Sadducees are beating me up is because I am a Pharisee, and so the Pharisees get mad at the Sadducees and another riot breaks out. And Paul is pulled out of there again. The Romans go in there and they pull him out. And they say, what is wrong with you, man? Everywhere you go, you stir up trouble everywhere. And so they take Paul and they put him in prison. And Paul has had this, is having this experience. And um, while he's in jail, the Bible says in Acts 23, an angel of the Lord visits Paul and says, Paul, I am with you. And just as you 
have stood for me in Jerusalem, you will stand before Caesar and give your testimony before Caesar. So what's happening? Paul, by doing God's will, God's will is being revealed to Paul. As you do God's will, his will will be revealed. As a church, as we do as we do what we know to do, God's will will be revealed to us as a church. What's the will of God for our church? To go into all the world and preach the gospel. Is that not the great commission? As we go and preach the gospel, as we fulfill the great commission, out of that will come a knowledge of the will of God. That's what that word means. It means to have understanding through experience. As you go, you will do. And then there's and then there is the uh, knowing the will of God by perceiving or by discernment. Mark chapter 5 and verse 29, the Bible says the woman with the issue of blood, it said that when Jesus had, when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, the Bible said, and she felt, she, she felt and was aware that she was healed. She was made aware of. In other words, to to know, to do the will of God and then know is to have an understanding or to have a discernment of the will of God for our lives. It means to be being aware of, to know by the Spirit. She knew she was healed when Jesus touched her. She didn't have to go back to the doctor. The Bible said that her issue of blood dried up. She knew at that moment that she was healed. She knew by perception. Just as I knew, let me tell you, I, how do I know to preach out of the book of Ephesians? I'll tell you why. Because when we were in Virginia, uh, I was, we were trying to find a church for my daughter. And we were going online, and we were watching services. We were driving by churches, and we were trying to find some place. I didn't want her just to go some dead church. How many know dead churches don't grow anything? And so we were trying to find some place that was spiritual. And I kept saying to myself, Lord... My goodness, every message we were watching online and, and she went to a church on Sunday, she said, Dad, she said, it's like a devotion. It's not preaching, it's like a devotion. Let me tell you what's happened to the church. We've lost the power of God in the pulpit. We've lost the power of God in the church. And men are not preaching anymore. They're not preaching the power of God, the transforming power of the Holy Ghost anymore. And the Lord spoke to me that the church is malnutrition. The church is malnutrition. There's a malnutrition in the body of Christ. And so, um, the third means to come to know, to recognize, to, to be completely absolute. In other words, to come to know. To know the will of God is that you come to a place of conviction. Over the years, I've come to certain convictions in my life about the things of God. They become convictions, and I've recognized them, and I have been absolute about what they mean. Number four is that we come to know the will of God by observation. Man, I wish I, could, I had time to take you through. But we come to know the will of God by observation. In John chapter 12, in verse 9, Y'all hang with me. I'm, 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 I know, I know y'all need a cheeseburger, but we'll get there. 
John chapter 12 and verse 9, the Bible says, And now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. In other words, to know the will of God is to know the will of God by seeing with observation. See, when Jesus healed Lazarus and he was, and he was there, people came out to see Lazarus. They wanted to see him resurrected. They wanted to physically see him. By observing him, by observing him, it is, is a, it's a coming to the knowledge of knowing that it's truth. You know, knowing by truth. And then finally, resolve. Luke chapter 16, verse 4. In other words, coming to the place. And uh, this, is a, the, this, is a, uh, this is the story about a servant who, uh, whose master came and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so he realized that there was a judgment that was coming on him. And so what he did was he began to do what he knew that he should do. And so that's the will of God, to come to resolve, to do what we know to do. To do what we know to do. We should have a conviction to wake up every day knowing what we should be doing as the body of Christ. As the church of Jesus Christ, that we are to know what we should be doing. Adam, if you'll come, we're going to close tonight. Verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul marries these two greetings together. Grace to you, grace, means charos. In the Greek, when the Greeks would greet each other, they would greet each other with this word charis, which means grace to you. May God's graciousness be with you. Grace and peace. Peace is, is the Jewish greeting, shalom, which means may God's peace shine upon you. Paul marries those two words together, charis and peace. You'll notice in Scripture that grace, wherever grace and peace are mentioned together, grace always comes first. Because you can't have the peace of God without the grace of God. Without the grace of God, there is no peace. Without the grace of God, there is no, there is no peace at all. How many know the Bible says we are saved through grace? Right? That is our salvation. And when grace comes into our lives, peace manifests in our life. Thank you, Jesus. Stand with me tonight as we close. Man, I'm excited. I mean, I'm just excited about what God's getting ready to do. I'm telling you, there is the riches of the fullness of God's grace that is in our life. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. Because we've been justified by faith, we have peace in God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace means that we've released that estrangement that we've had with God. By the grace of God, our salvation, we have peace now with God. He's released that estrangement that there has been towards God. Hallelujah. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I want to tell you the best decision you ever make in your life is to give your life to Jesus. I'm telling you, the church is living in the place of spiritual malnutrition. We're dying in our churches, but in the, clo- in the Word of God is a closet full of little bags that has the provision that is needed for everything we need. I don't want to die of malnutrition. I don't want to be like Hattie Green. I'm not eating cold oatmeal. Amen? I'm, he- I'm eating hot bread off, of the, off the press. You know what I mean? I'm eating the word of God. I'm eating out of the bread of life, freshly from heaven, riches from heaven. Why? Because I'm living it up. We're living it up. We're living it up. I don't know if you've ever seen the end of the movie, Living It Up, with uh, Dean Martin and... (laughs) Jerry Lee Lewis. Y'all got to watch it. It's a great movie. But Jerry Lee Lewis finds out that Dean Martin had been lying to him, that he wasn't really dying. And he gets mad at first. But then he comes to the realization, and this is the realization that Jerry Lee Lewis comes to. He realizes that this is the way he should have been living his life all along. He didn't start living his life up until he realized he was losing his life. Then he started living it up. So he became happy and he thanked Dean Martin. I'm here to tell you that we can't wait to the end of our Christian life and realize that there were riches that were available to us that we never tapped into. We can't be a church that does not Take the blessings and the resources that God has given us in this book and not, and not bestow them. And we'll know them by doing the will of God. We'll go out and do, and God will show us the will of God. I'm telling you, we've got a great work that God wants us to do here. Good things are happening, y'all. Good things are happening in the midst of this church. Y'all don't always see behind the scenes, but I'm telling you, there's some good things that are happening. There's some excitement that is moving in this body. People are excited about ministry. They're excited about what they're doing. And I'm telling you, we're we're positioned for an incredible breakthrough. Right? And we're going to tap into these riches. Father, we love you tonight. Lift your hands tonight. I want to pray over you. God, we open the windows of heaven tonight. We come after your unsearchable riches. We search the will of God for our lives. We do the will, God, and we know it through experience. We know it through observation. We know it, God. As we do your will, we will know your will. And so release into us tonight. We don't want to be the kind of Christian that don't understand the riches that we have in Christ. We don't wander through life with a case of spiritual malnutrition, who doesn't know that there is a feast that we can eat off of as believers. And Lord, in these next few weeks, would you release into this church the principles of the riches of your goodness. Let the fire of God fall on us. Not just for the manifestation, 
but for the equipping. God, we can tap into promises that there won't be one Christian left behind in malnutrition. Fullness of God, filled to the rim, never lacking, always carrying forth the provision that's provided. We pray that tonight over all of our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.